Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Take It Away, the complete Paul McCartney archive podcast. Welcome back to Take It Away, the complete Paul McCartney archive podcast. We're back today with Wings at the Speed of Sound, the fantastic follow-up to Venus and Mars. Before we dive into Paul McCartney and Wings land, we're going to start off with the George Harrison album of the time, Extra Texture. Chris, what do you think? Extra Texture. Extra Texture. Well, as a matter of fact, I reviewed it today. Wow, that's one boring-ass album. Yes. Have you listened to it lately? Yeah, I listened to some of it, but I had the exact same reaction that you had. I was just disappointed. You know, upon review, I think maybe I like Dark Horse more. I always had assumed that Extra Texture was better, but Dark Horse at least has a little variety. Extra Texture is one plodding slow song with murky production after another. I'm pretty sure that's why they repeated the opening track, You, at the beginning of Side 2, because it's one of the two up-tempo songs on there. If they didn't include it at the beginning of Side 2, we'd go from a slow song at the end of Side 1 to a slow song at the beginning of Side 2 with no interruption. And, you know, I didn't pay close enough attention. I wonder if it's the exact same recording. I think it is. I think they just faded it in and (laughs) back out. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Just anything to break up the monotony. Yeah. I like His Name is Legs. Was that the last track on the album? That's the last track. That's the other up-tempo one. That's a nice blues. There's like some kind of spoken word going on the whole time. Uh, Yeah. Aside from that, Uh man, I, I I don't even know what to make of that record. I think George was just kind of, what, coked out? I guess, and maybe a little uninspired after the disaster of the Dark Horse tour. Yeah. There are good songs on here, and in many respects, look, I find myself thinking any one of these slow songs is a decent song. It's just you can't make a whole album of that. No, no, no. My Guitar Can't Keep From Crying is is an excellent song. Fine, yeah. Nice uh, sequel, yeah. Learn to get up when I fall 
otherwise, yeah, it's not a great album. Despite all of that, it went gold in the United States. It was a number eight album on the Billboard charts in the U.S., and it made it to number 16 in the U.K. How about that for wow. Beatles' Amnesty? Yeah, he's still George Harrison, right? Right. Well into the 70s, he has this success with something that would probably be just widely ignored now. So. Do you know if there was a single from Extra Texture? Yeah, there were actually two singles. You was released the 12th of September in 75 in the UK, the 15th in the US, and then This Guitar Can't Keep From Crying was December of 75. Okay, I think those are the, the two best songs, at least from my point of view. Yeah, those would certainly be the ones I would pick as well. Yeah. The first one, You, made it up to number nine in Canada, number 20 in the United States, number 38 in the UK. And this guitar mm. can't keep from crying. It didn't do quite as well. I can't even find the chart information on it. <laughs> yeah. So these songs weren't exactly saturating the airwaves. No. In I'm, 75. Well, I mean, has yeah. anybody ever ran up to you after you told them you were a Beatles fan and been like, hey, man, have you ever heard You by George Harrison? <laughs> <laughs> no. I've, I've had people ask me about this song. That's, the next album. That's a fun one. I like that tune. <laughs> that's a, yeah. Well, the next album's excellent. When we get to 33 and a third, that'll, we'll have fun with that. But yeah, so it seems a bit of a gray area for George in the mid-70s here. But for Paul, so mid-70s after this last album, Wings had played a series of concerts in Australia in November of 75. They took a break for the holidays to be with their families. And then in January of 1976, they booked time at Abbey Road to record this album we're talking about today. Believe it or not, it was the first time Paul and his band had recorded in England since Red Rose Speedway. The first one made mainly in Abbey Road since Wings Wildlife. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. There were plenty of overdubs in Abbey Road, but this one was, like Wings Wildlife, done right there, mainly at Abbey Road. Yeah, in, in and all. just about a month, January 5th to February 4th in 1976. Yeah, so this album was recorded quickly, and from what I understand, a lot of these songs were written fairly quickly, or the songs were pulled from old demos or old locations. They were worked right. on quickly, they were recorded in the studio as takes, I never really loved this record upon first listening to it. I didn't know when I had heard it for the first time that this was a, an enormous commercial success for Paul and Wings. Yeah. Enormously Huge. successful. So Paul got this thing out so he would have a piece of product for tour. That's what it feels like to me. That's what it is. I actually find some parallels between Wings at the Speed of Sound and Wings Wildlife. Of course, they're the exact opposite each of each other in so far as Wings Wildlife is sort of thrown together and Wings at the Speed of Sound is very carefully, very meticulously constructed. But they were both made quickly at Abbey Road for a kind of specific purpose in the case of Wings Wildlife to get the band up and running in the case of Speed of Sound, as you say, to have product for a tour. They seem similar to me and... Not that they sound similar, but this thrown together quality, this rushed out album quality. And furthermore, these two albums for me are the low point of 70s McCartney. Mm. I don't know which one I have more problems with. That might be a strange thing to say, since everyone assumes Wings Wildlife is so bad. As we discussed on the podcast, I have affection for that album. And find some things on this album far more forgettable. Yeah, it's not a great album, However, 
It went to number one in Canada, in France, in the United States. It was number two in Australia, New Zealand, Norway, the United Kingdom, number four in Japan. You go down the charts and this thing was ever, it was a worldwide phenomenon. I mean, the Let Em In and Silly Love Songs are enduring Paul McCartney classics. He still plays Let Em In on every single show yes. he's ever had since this time. Yes, he does. Yeah. Well, it's probably pretty easy. Yeah. Not, <laughs> not too hard of a song to sing. <laughs> yeah, or play. This album strikes me as less than the sum of its parts in several respects, actually. <laughs> that's, a, that's amazing. <laughs> less than the sort sum of, of its parts. <laughs> yeah. Because it a little like extra texture that way. Because if you listen to the songs, they're all pretty good songs. There isn't a single song on here that I think is really, well, okay, there's one song that I think is bad. But for the most part, any of these songs is okay, but they just don't add up to a real album. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. And right. Further, furthermore, I think the Wings contributions also less than the sum of their parts, because it seems to me that Denny Lane sings just fine on, say, The Note You Never Wrote. Joe English sings the hell out of Must Do Something I About It. I love that That's a great one. performance. Well, I love that performance. Man. Right. Right. And Why No Junko's a fine song. It's all right. Jimmy McCulloch's song. And yet, at the end of the album, you kind of think, well, this is a Paul McCartney album that could use a lot more Paul McCartney. Yeah, it really, really can. I wish I liked it more, but it's a weak entry. So with that, yeah, let's dive into track one. Let him in. Someone knocking at the door. Somebody ringing the bell. Someone's knocking at the door. Somebody's ringing the bell. Do me a favor. Open the door. And let him in. Ooh, yeah. Someone's knocking at the door Somebody ringing the bell Someone's knocking at the door Somebody's ringing the bell Do me a favor Open the door Let Him In, recorded February of 1976 at Abbey Road, was the second single off of this record. It made it to number three in the States and number two in the United Kingdom. The B-side of this track was the fourth track in the album, Beware My Love. And this song, I think, Chris, you and I are going to butt heads on this one. I love this track. Oh, yeah? I love how ridiculous it is. And I know you don't like it very much at all. I don't like it very much. <laughs> well, why? I listened, I listened to it, though. Yeah, this morning I was doing some review, and I listened to the Japanese single edit. Cutting it down to three and a half minutes helps. I, I don't like it because it's it's repetitive and it doesn't have much of a tune and the lyrics are the lyrics are okay. The lyrics are silly. Maybe they're similar to Junior's Farm, but Junior's Farm in the sense of it's this crowd of characters, right? Right. But Junior's Farm is a little more colorful. So even the lyrics, although there aren't any major missteps in the lyrics, they're not very exciting either. So you disagree with all of that? I disagree with some of it. <laughs> I don't mind that the song is five minutes long. It's repetitive. It's meant to be kind of calming and soothing and pedestrian. The lyrics, you just mentioned the lyrics. You got Sister Susie. There's a reference to Susie and the Red Stripes. The Yeah, which is neat. 
phony band that Linda was in. Brother John, John Lennon, he even says this himself. Martin Luther is Martin Luther King Jr. A lot of people think it's... Martin Luther. Yeah, the yeah. Martin Luther. Uh, Phil and Don, the Everly Brothers. Brother Michael. We, <laughs> I mean, we spent half the last podcast talking about Brother Michael. You guys should know who Brother Michael right. is. Auntie Jin was a real aunt of his. I think it was Ginny, though. Jane, which turned into Ginny, which turned into Jin. Yeah. <laughs> and then, I don't know who Uncle Ernie is. Actually, wasn't Uncle Ernie... The role that Keith Moon played in Tommy. I'm almost positive. I it think was. that's true, but Paul also said at one point that it was just, it was sort of Uncle Harry. He has an Uncle Harry, and it just sort of turned into Ernie. Harry, Annie, yeah, Annie. I yeah. can see that in the vocal booth. Sister Susie, Brother John, Martin Luther. Uh, I like the military snare stuff and the hornery. The arrangement is yeah. wonderful. Yeah, it's fantastic. The arrangement's really good. In fact, I really think that Let Em In and Silly Love Songs are similar in that they are both bare-bones songs that rely on the arrangement to make them interesting. In the case of Silly Love Songs, I think that succeeds. Here, it's an interesting arrangement, but it just doesn't quite save the song for me. Yeah. But it's a good arrangement. I really like the sound effects, the doorbell at the beginning, the creaking door. I love the military drums. That's really cool. That doorbell is Paul's doorbell at Cavendish Avenue. They drove a sound truck over and they, they recorded the doorbell. He had like a, it's a harmonium or some kind of electric organ in his front parlor. And then they also got yes. the, the frying pan on Cook of the House. That's right. And the harmonium apparently, he made the comment that his harmonium was better than the harmoniums at... Abbey Road, so it was worth <laughs> taking the truck over. <laughs> Only the best harmonium will do, you know. You know, I've got the best harmonium down at Cavendish. We can just nick over there and record. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, in today's age of digital, you know, easy recording, to think of driving the freaking mobile truck over to your house to record a harmonium part, it's pretty funny. It's hilarious, the expense of that. Let him in, fine song. It was a successful single. Everybody knows it. I don't yeah. know if there's much more to say about it. It's a good record, problematic song from my point of view, uh, so we disagree a little on that. I think it's a fine, in terms of mood, it's a good way to open a record, good way to open an album. Yeah, yeah. If anything, this song shows how Paul is a fantastic producer. He had his ear to the ground. Disco was starting to happen in the 70s. Let Him In, Silly Love Songs, these tunes, like you're saying, are similar they're more production than songwriting. Yes, I love that. That's very well said. They're more about production than songwriting. Production and arranging than songwriting. It's craftsmanship. It's not content. There's no emotional revelation listening to Let Him In or Silly Love Songs. Let Him In is, hey, let him in the party. Silly Love Songs is, hey, I love you guys. You know, it's not, this isn't instant karma or, or give peace a chance. Something that makes you think. Let's move on to The Note You Never Wrote, written by Paul McCartney but sung by Denny Lane. This is a strange set of lyrics. It's a beautiful song musically and in terms of its production and arrangement. I think Denny Lane is a good choice to sing it, too. But what in the world is it about? 
A bottle floated out to sea After days when it had found the perfect spot It opened up Later on, the story goes, like, what a great opener. I love that That's line. a great opener. Yeah, but I wanted to, I got the book out here because I want to read the second verse. Please. After all, I'm sure you know, the mayor of Baltimore is here. After days, now he can finally appear. Now at last he's here. What? Yeah, it almost sounds like post-apocalyptic. What's it about? I don't know. Yeah, did, did something happen and now the mayor of Baltimore has become the president <laughs> of the United States? <laughs> what? Because I've, I read in one of these books, oh, the Parasi book mentions the song's a meditation on loneliness. Is it? I don't, I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, the, ne- the mayor never is going to get my vote because he never is going to get a quote from the little note that you never wrote. Right, I'll never get the quote because you don't... Yeah, that's a little bit of a... That's a bit of a stretch, lyrically, is it not? Yeah. Yeah. After all, I'm sure you know The mayor of Baltimore is here After days, now he can finally appear Now at last he's here I guess these lyrics, just by dint of their strangeness, are interesting. And and the mismatch between the lyrics and the music. The music sounds really quite forlorn, quite haunting. Yeah, I love the vibe. It has an incredible vibe. All the little synth yeah. licks and the, the guitar solo is fantastic, too. Oh, yeah, that Jimmy McCulloch guitar solo. Let's play that. Yeah. Well, it's hard to dislike this record too much, but I have to point out how strange the lyrics are. What do you think about Denny's singing on this one? Denny either, it's tough for me. Sometimes I think Denny is fantastic, and others it's just kind of, huh, it's kind of middle of the road. I think yeah. Denny's singing on Time to Hide is far superior than the, the singing on The Note You Never Wrote. Sure, I agree. I think Paul could have sang this, and it would have been fine, and it would have made it better, and that would have been better for the album as a whole. I Yeah, I'd love to hear Paul do this. Of course, we have Paul's version of Must Do Something About It, and we'll get to that later. Paul's version might not always be the, the best That's one. That's right. That's right. Well, they were also recording it quickly, and the vocal takes Paul has on this album, he nails. So maybe he was just yeah. recovering or tired or... 
He also faced a lot of criticism for Wings just being a cover for his music career. So he's saying, hey, guys, you know, go ahead, sing this one, Denny. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you'll take the note you never wrote over Spirits of Ancient Egypt, right? I sure will. <laughs> Easy. Yeah, no, I, I do like the note you never wrote. Just don't know what happened with the lyrics. Well, speaking of goofy lyrics, how about the next track, She's My Baby? Don't mind the goofy lyrics here. Like gravy don't care. down to the last drop. Don't care. I keep mopping it up. Yeah, yeah. Don't don't care at all. And here's why. My baby, she comes out at night. She taking me by surprise. She's my baby. Like gravy down to the last drop. Mopping her up. Yeah, yeah. She's my baby. It's a, it's a fucking awesome record. It really is. Yeah, the bass work, the chord structure, the singing, everything about it's just really fun. And the lyrics are coherent. They might be goofy as all get out, but they make sense. Yes, they do. He described it as snatches from a diary of sorts that sort of gives us a picture of what his and Linda's relationship was like in 70 and 71, which is when this song was actually written. So here we are again, back in 71, the explosion of songs. That fertile breakup period where Paul's just dealing with it and just nailing songs left and right, like just fantastic little gems. To think that this was on a demo tape for five years. It's crazy. Yeah. Now, the demo we have on the EMI Archive edition, do you think that's from 71? Because it sounds like his mid-70s voice. Yeah, it's, I think that's a later version of him demonstrating the track for maybe an arranger or someone. I don't think that's 70 or 71. Because they, they make a big deal in the Archive book about how, oh, you can hear Paul writing the song in that demo. Yeah, but you... But I don't think that's, I don't think that's him writing the song. No. It doesn't sound like Ram-era vocal. No, it would have been different. It would have been that throaty sort of thing. Like, this is a strong singing voice. He has been on mm -hmm. tour. He's had a couple number ones again. This is post-Band on the Run, Paul. In my, I, I could yeah. be wrong, but... No, I think, yeah, I think you're right. Have you heard the working classical version of this? I have not. 
1999, Paul released an album called Working Classical, which was a follow-up to this record called Standing Stone in 97. And it's, I mean, I'm doing air quotes. You can't see it. It's a podcast. Classically arranged versions of some of his songs with some new tunes. And uh-huh. She's My Baby and Warm and Beautiful show up on that album. Right. And I can, I can hear in my mind what Warm and Beautiful would sound like, but I'm having a hard time hearing a, an orchestral She's My Baby. Well, you don't have to because we're going to play it now. <laughs> I guess this kind of supports what I said previously, where Let Him In and Silly Love Songs are productions. She's My Baby's music, even though the lyrics are kind of goofy, the, the music is fantastic. There's a lot of really yeah. good music and arrangement on this record. And I overlooked it until digging for this podcast specifically. Yeah, She's My Baby's a little gem. Someone somewhere described it as a kind of a mashup between a, a heartfelt love song and one of his granny music vaudeville type things. I can kind of see that, but yeah. I, I really hear it as just sort of mid seventies soft rock. Yeah, same. I love the production on this. Love the electric piano and the bass sounds so good. I don't know who played the bass. I think there's some confusion about whether it was Denny or Paul on bass. It's gotta be Paul. Yeah, it's a pretty good bass part. Yeah. Boom, 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 boom. Yeah. But we know it's Paul on, on electric piano. So yes, for sure. Maybe did an overdub. Yeah. Could be that, that Denny laid down a guide base of some kind and Paul went back and redid it. You had to catch a feel. It makes sense. Makes sense to me. Yeah. So track four, Beware My Love, recorded August 75 at Olympic and then brought back out for the sessions January and February in Abbey Road. Uh, I'm not so keen on this one. I think it's a little dull. It, yeah. I mean, it tries to be high energy, but I think it's there's not enough song there. Yeah, the song, you were talking about lyrics before. That is where this album kind of falls flat. Uh, I have no yeah. idea what this tune is about. Hey, do you know? Do you have any idea? Yeah, it's It sounds to me as if the speaker of the song is just warning some woman that she's going to get screwed over by some guy. I don't think there's anything autobiographical going on there. And, and even that is vague, taken mostly from the title, but you know, he'll bowl you over and lines like mm. that. So it does seem to be a warning to someone about a problematic lover. Come say, found out, come tell you what it's all about.
Can't say, found out, can't tell you what it's all about. Don't know who does, but I'll tell you to beware my love. It's, I think that's pretty cool, but it's like a 70s version of She Loves You. He's doing that third person thing again. Ah, it's a dark She Loves You. It's, it's He Loves You, Watch Out. And I, I do take the title to be, I assume the title is meant as Beware, comma, My Love, as opposed to Beware of My Love. He's not referring to himself as the dangerous lover. You're right. I don't think. You're right. He'll sweep you up under his carpet, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I hate that. I hate that line. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm not crazy about the singing on it either. It's very flippant sounding. Yeah. I mean, he's doing he's doing his scratchy sort of hard rock voice, but he sounds flippant and sort of silly. It's a big production. It's a really aggressive. It's really aggressive playing, you know, by the band. I like when it opens up and starts rocking, and there's all those little riffs, sort of like the little bass riff at the end of Junior's Farm. There's a back into the yeah. And I like it when the little abbreviated version of the opening comes back right before they go into the final stretch. Yeah, that is that is nice. Yeah. But that's again yeah. our theory, arrangement, <laughs> production. Right. He's good at sort of working the energy, but it's yeah, it's not great songwriting. Speaking of songwriting, the next song is another entry from Jimmy McCulloch the lead guitarist of Wings at this time, Wino Junko. Jimmy takes the lead vocal. There's an awesome, great guitar solo. But again, like you, you were saying last time, it's another song about addiction. Yeah, these two contributions from McCulloch, who will die, what, about a year later? Yeah. From an overdose. Did he die of an overdose? I believe so, yeah. Anyway, it was substance-related death. And here he is making his two big wings contributions, both of them songs about addiction. It's an okay song. It's a nice production. It's got the sort of uh, tipsy sounding music, you know, with the electric piano, the drunken sounding music. Yeah. About to pass out kind of feeling that it has. I, 
What do you think? Is it better than Medicine Jar? I like it better. Yeah, I like it better. I'm, I'm hearing it in my head. I think it's better tune, better melody, better production. The guitar solo is wild. McCulloch was a master. He really was. It's really a shame we didn't get more more guitar playing from Jimmy McCulloch. I, I, what if he were on London Town? What if he were on Back Whoa. to the Egg? Whoa. You know? Yeah. He really brought something to Wings. As part of this process of making the podcast, reviewing the albums and reading about the circumstances of the albums, I've really come to appreciate McCulloch's contribution. Yeah, me too. So earlier you asked... How did McCulloch die? I just looked it up. On September 27th, 1979, McCulloch was found dead by his brother in his flat in London. The autopsy found that he had died of heart failure due to morphine and alcohol poisoning, and he was only 26. Morphine and alcohol, not a good combination. Yep. <laughs> not to make light of the tragic death. No, but, no, no, of course not. But no. yeah, it's, you're, you're right. Actually, I mean, in other words, that's a death wish if you're fooling around with that combination. Which is funny because the line in the song that struck me hardest was, Ain't scared to die, it's such a high, till I go down again. And then there's that Mm. foreboding Paul and Linda harmony, till you go down again. (laughs) I know there was an awful lot of tension between Paul and Jimmy. There's that story, should we tell that on the podcast, of... Paul slapping Jimmy a couple times. Yeah, I actually don't know it. Paul confirms the story, you know. The story basically is that they, at some point during the Wings Over America tour, Jimmy had had a bad night. He'd had some bad solos and wasn't feeling good. And the crowd was screaming for an encore. And Jimmy said, nope, no, I'm not going back out. And Paul says, well, yeah, you are going back out. I'm not going back out. Paul slapped him, I think, a couple times. And Jimmy went back out and they finished the encore. And later on, Paul was interviewed about this. I'm sure I could find the interview. And Paul is unapologetic. He says, you don't do that. You don't just not go back out on stage for an encore. And he said he wasn't going. And I, yeah, I smacked him and he went back out too. Wow. Hmm. Unapologetic. (laughs) So there you go. So those guys weren't getting along too well. Jimmy was getting to be a problem. From the very beginning, it was a little bit of a problem, I think. But Yeah, if you're that young of a guy and you're being thrust into the limelight with an ex-Beatle, I would imagine yeah, a lot that, of pressure. Yeah. Yeah. Bit of a happier note, you flip the record over, side B, track one is Silly Love Songs. January 16th, 
and Into February at Abbey Road. This was the first single off the album, released April 1st, 1976 in the United States and April 30th of the same year in the United Kingdom. This tune spent 15 weeks on the charts, five non-consecutive weeks at number one in the U.S., and it was number two in the U.K. Pretty impressive. This was simply part of the culture in 1976. Well, yeah, in 2008, the song was listed at number 31 on Billboard's Greatest Songs of All Time, and that commemorated (laughs) the 50th anniversary of the Hot 100 chart. And, uh, you know, I did what I normally do, so you're talking non-consecutive weeks, so do you want to hear the ups and downs real quick? Please. So May 22nd, after the song had been out a month or so, Song hits number one, then it's knocked out of number one by Diana Ross's Love Hangover on May 29th. So then Wings climbs back up two weeks later on June 12th, and then is knocked out again by Afternoon Delight by the Starland Vocal Band. (laughs) Then it was off the charts, out of the number one position, rather. It got knocked out of its position by a silly love song. Exactly. (laughs) What do you? How, how do you feel about the track? Like music, lyrics. Uh, well, let me just say at the outset, I, yeah, I love it. I've, I've always loved silly love songs. I just reviewed the demo this morning. Yeah, and the demo really brings to light how trivial a song it actually is. Yes, it's a few chords and a few lines sung over and over. I've heard people refer to it as strong melodically. But they're hearing the bass line. That's the, correct. The actual tune itself, the actual vocal melody is, it's, it's really funny. It's repeated notes down a triad, repeated notes down the major scale, repeated notes, little variation on major scale. That's the verse tune. This is not McCartney's most memorable tune. This is not my love or, you know, some, some marvel of melodic construction. It's production. Pretty simple. Yeah. It's production. What a production. What a bass line. Yeah. Great horn riffs that, I mean, Paul wrote himself. Well, not wrote, but he instructed the horn players on. And a big orchestra. And, you know, he milks all of that for, how long is it? Five and a half minutes or so. Almost He milks six. all of that and does... Six? Okay. 5.54, yeah. I believe the whole song was played on the radio too, right? There was no radio edit, was there? None that I'm aware of, no. Yeah, it would be tough to know what to edit. You know, in its fluffiness, it's all essential. Because as we say, if the emphasis is on arranging and production, it's all about that layering of the voices and the building up the horn and string parts. And uh, we have a little bridge and the bridge is really nice. We really I need love that contrast. That bridge. Love oh, and the bridge ends with that high A. Love isn't silly at all. Yeah, that's a yeah high A. Nice.
song's in C major, by the way. Yes. I've just been discovering how many songs of Paul's are in C major or A minor. He, he likes the white keys. But, Easy to play. Yeah, the song is in C major. I think, where, what is the tempo on that? About 120? Is this a song that's 120 in C major? I think it pretty might much, be, yeah. <laughs> pretty much designed to be a number one hit. <laughs> and it's got that 1, 3, 4, 5, or that 1, 3, 4 kind of chord progression, you know, bass, bass progression. I don't know, maybe it's, what is the, is it 1, 3, 4? Yes, yeah, it's, it's 1, Or is it 1, three, 1, 6, 4? I think it's 1, 3, 4. That's, of course, Paul's same progression from... Penny Lane, and he actually uses the, the chorus of Penny Lane, and he actually uses that in quite a few songs. That chord progression really came to be a staple in disco. And it's funny you bring that up, or that you mention it, that... Have you ever heard Al Green's Sha La La? Probably, but it's not coming to mind. Well, let's play it here. I'd like to play them side by side. They're nearly the same. I'm pretty sure it's exactly the same chord progression. Wow. Okay, let's do it. Yeah. By the way, With a Little Luck has that chord progression, too. We haven't really gotten here yet. The older I get, the more I like that song. I think that might be one of my favorite McCartney songs. <laughs> With a Little period. Luck? Oh, oh I, yeah. It's so That's good, good stuff. Well, we won't play it now. but Not yet, no. We'll save that one. So Paul's bass playing is some of his best, and I want to pull a quote from John Lennon, one of his last interviews. It was uh, the, his Playboy interview, like near the end of his life. The quote is, Paul was one of the most innovative bass players ever, and half the stuff that's going on now is directly ripped off from his Beatles period. He's an egomaniac about everything else about himself, but his bass playing, he was always a bit coy about. Uh-huh. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, Silly Love Song's bass line, it's, I mean, it's not technically difficult, but imagine singing and playing that plodding, thumping, melodic line. It's not easy. Well, one thing that I think really helps the song is the fact that the bass line does seem to be derived rhythmically and motivically from the vocal melody. So the repeated notes there in the vocal melody lead to the bum, 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 repeated notes in the bass line. So they probably line up pretty well and, you know, they're, it's an eighth note thing, right? So I think once you train yourself to do that, to concede the point though, he's playing a complicated bass part and singing. This isn't a normal bass part. No, and you, you know, you said something hilarious earlier in the podcast where the sum is less than its parts. I think the silly love songs, the sum of the parts is greater. Yeah. You have all these little simple melodic lines over a series of instruments bass, horns, piano, drums. But you have a Linda melody, you have a Denny melody, you have Paul's melody, and they all come together at one part. It's yeah. it's really nice. It's nice. It's a well-constructed pop record. This innovative bass line, you know, it, it has a little in common, I think, with 
the complicated another day baseline, for yes. example. You know, we've heard him do things like that before, where he just launches into melody in the bass. But here, it's kind of part of the hook. Yeah. I, I'm guessing a lot of people were walking around humming that bass line. Yeah. 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 And you don't even realize that that's like the melody. But people were making fun of it in the 70s and the 80s. And then guys like Bruce Springsteen followed up in like the 90s or something. And he's like, Paul, you know, I didn't understand what you were talking about, but I get it now. I get it. I think a lot of people sort of finally gave in in the 90s and just started admitting that this stuff was great. Yeah. <laughs> Paul talks about it himself in the EMI archive book, the part where he's being interviewed about silly love songs. He talks about the fact that it just wasn't cool to be into love songs. You, you know, you might like them, but you couldn't admit it. You couldn't say, oh, I like love songs. Yeah, it's it, the, the title is subversive, silly love songs. He's making fun of himself. Yeah. In a way, he's attacking those who call them silly. He's owning up. He says in the book, I'm owning up to some extent, but he's also sort of, sort of mocking the idea that the songs are really silly. What's so silly about them? Love isn't silly at all. Yeah. yeah. You know, on the topic of the, of the bass line, he has an even more melodic bass line a couple years later with Good Night Tonight. Ooh. I actually think that's the superior bass part. It's that his really best one. is mainly, that's the tune for the song, that bass line on Good Night Tonight. Yeah, that's, that's his best one, for sure. Yeah, but we'll get to that soon enough. So the B-side of this record is actually the next track on the album, Cook of the House. Cook of the House. Uh, <laughs> you know, we've said this before and it bears repeating. Paul took Linda's voice and made it part of the Wings sound in those background harmonies. That's right. Denny Lane says it over and over that, you know, Wings was such a great harmony band and, he, and he's right. Somehow Paul fused her voice into the, the sound of the Wings harmonies, and she's important. She's really part of the sound. But as a lead singer, uh, it's pretty tough to listen to. Yeah, this one's bad. I, I don't like listening to it. I don't care if the frying pan sounds like applause. <laughs> uh, that's kind of neat. Yeah, that's the best thing about the record, right? Yeah. It's got some cool recordings of actual grease. Paul's bass playing is on a... That double bass that was Elvis Presley's bassist. That's right. And it's and even Paul admits in that archive book, he's like, it's not that good. 
My bass playing isn't that good. It's a sloppy rockabilly record. Rough and tumble is the way he puts it. Yeah. He loves Linda, and he's given Linda a lead vocal on a B-side. I guess that's the positive element of it. It's nice Now, of at one point in the archive interview, he mentions that she wrote it. Yes. So it was mainly her song, and he undoubtedly refined it, but... It's not much of a song. Yeah, so it's her singing her own song. It's one or two notes. And then... Not, yeah, not not too great. But kind of a nice ambience. It does get the Rockabilly vibe. I do like the chips frying at the end. That's my favorite part of the record. And uh, yeah, this would have been a fine, simply B-side. I, I know it was the B-side, but it, it shouldn't have been on the album. I get the idea. You know, it's part of the make everyone's contributions matter ethos on Wings at the Speed of Sound. But I never noticed that Silly Love Songs, which is one of my favorite Wings songs. It's obviously one of the world's favorite Wings songs. Is next to easily one of my least favorite Wings songs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really down there, isn't it? Yes. Cook of the house. Yeah, the the alpha yeah. and the omega right next to each other. Really. <laughs> yeah. Let's move along. Time to hide. This is great. Yeah. Good old Denny Lane coming through again. question was answered for me in preparing for this. Okay. And I can't remember which book I read it in, but apparently when Red Rose Speedway was made, the record company didn't want anyone but Paul singing lead. They That's thought right. it would be problematic and uncommercial. That answers our question of where the hell is I Would Only Smile on that album. That's right. That's the answer to that question. That's why these songs yeah. didn't make it out. And it's a shame. Because here's another great Denny Lane song, and I Would Only Smile is just as good as this one. Yeah. But I guess by this time, Wings had gotten enough credibility that Paul could get away with. In fact, Paul was under pressure to let everyone contribute. How about the big, bridge? Big turnaround. Yes. Oh, my God. What a fantastic yeah. part. Great harmonies. Didn't you say that's what Denny said? Yeah. Great harmonies. Yes, I will. I love. Oh, yes, I will. I love this 
I don't it's mind. It's a good vocal all around from Denny. Good vocal and good lyrics, too. There's a lot of nice little good lines. Lyrics. Yeah. If I, I have, have to shake a little, a little sand, sand out, out of, of my, my shoes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a good moment melodically, too. Oh, wow. We really they are. come in and harmonize on shoes. Yeah. That's really good. I had the I, I mentioned this before and it's embarrassing, but I had the pleasure of seeing Denny Lane perform in California, and he, not embarrassing. And he played this song, and it got probably the biggest reaction of the night, at least from his original tunes. Yeah, I think a lot of Wings fans like this song, and of course they played this on Wings Over America, right? Yes, they did. Yes, they did. Yeah, I think that was a big, big accomplishment for Denny. He talks about the thrill of playing that in front of huge, huge audiences. Yeah, man. Imagine that, being Denny Lane on this ride with Wings in, in 76, 75, 76. Well, it's nice to get these reminders that Denny Lane really was a, a talented singer-songwriter. I'm glad that Paul gave him some of these moments in the spotlight. Absolutely. So the next track is Must Do Something About It recorded in January and February at Abbey Road. This is a tune that Paul wrote, but Joe English, the drummer, sings. And he sings the hell out of it. Wow. It's a great vocal. It's a really, really nice vocal. I've just seen another sunset on my own All day long I've been alone And I must do something about it Yes, I must do something about it. Played another losing card game with myself. Lonely joker on a shelf. And I must do something about it. Yes, I must do something about it. I'm surprised Paul let him have this one because it's a really good song, too. Well, the story is that Paul kept hearing Joe sing it in the studio. That's right. He was just walking around singing it, and Paul thought, God, he really sings it great. And he's got such a good voice, so hey, give it a try. Yeah, there you go. Now, I don't know the version we have by Paul on the EMI archive. I don't know. That was a guide vocal, right? So Paul wasn't really trying. No, 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 no. Guide, yeah. So we don't know what a final McCartney vocal would have sounded like on that. No. But on the basis of that guide track, I find myself thinking it was the right choice. Joe's better. I mean, his voice is simply better suited for the song. 
Yeah. Per- really cutting and emphatic, you know, very rhythmically precise. Paul's kind of fudging the rhythms a little bit. Joe is really dead on with the rhythms. That's right. He has that really beautiful declamatory style. I could have used some more Joe English vocals. Me too, man. I would have taken a Joe English solo record if one such exists. I need to try to track that down. So if you read through the lyrics of this tune, I think another, I mean, this is complete conjecture, so bear with me. The lyrics are a bit revealing. You know, he says, no one even knows that I'm feeling this way. You know, the lonely joker on the shelf. He's basically saying, like, nobody needs me. Nobody knows what I'm doing. Nobody cares or understands how I'm feeling. And Paul's not the kind of guy in his songs to reveal too much of himself. So maybe that added into it. Oh, we'll, we'll give this one to the drummer. Joe English points out in interviews that those lines are pretty much what he was thinking himself. He was away from his family, away from his wife, feeling lonely and out of sorts. And he was able to sing it with such gusto, partly because the words sort of came from him. They meant so something. So maybe it's true that maybe Paul was sort of thinking of Joe's situation, consciously or not, and writing about that. You're right. It's not a very McCartney-like sentiment. Watched another movie on TV. Yeah, it's you know, it's a bit uh, it's a bit left even for Paul. No one seems to need my vote. <laughs> another vote. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's a good record. It's a beautiful little acoustic vibe on this record. I like this song a lot. It's it's a highlight on a record that doesn't have too many sparkling, shiny moments, and this is one of them. So the next track on the record, San Ferian, has always, always been one of my low points up until researching for this podcast. I never thought... What, what he, didn't you like about it? Uh, so up until literally this morning, until literally today... I thought it was just an unfinished series of verses that were not well constructed or thought through. And I read one thing about how there's a French phrase. Well, it's pronounced Saint-Ferrien, maybe Saint-Ferrien. Yeah, Saint-Ferrien. It It means it does not matter, which was a part of the First World War. It came from mixing of cultures and Saint-Ferrien. They'd say it when they were given instruction and they thought it was stupid and there's nothing they could do about it in the military. Um, variations on it were, you know, send for Marianne or San Fariana. But I didn't know mm-hmm. that. And if you reread I, the lyrics yeah. or listen to the song, it, it makes it a complete thought and it redeems it for me. You can imagine the French phrase translated every time you hear the title. But also what I gather from the rest of the lyrics, what, what little lyrics there are, is that it's about a an out-of-touch rich person or an empty rich person? You've got a lot. Yeah, yeah. it seems to be about a, a lost person who has material plenty. That's, that's the bad. And that's who Sanfairy Anne is. You've got a lot. And from what you've got, I'd say you're doing well, dear. Dressed like a dream. And if things are what they seem, you're looking swell, dear. Inside your shiny shell, you dance all day, dear. Yeah, a person out of touch yeah. with reality. But then by the final line, he says, San Ferrien, you know, it, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. 
you know, Paul says himself, and I agree with him, it's cool that it's such a short track, that he doesn't beat it to death. And, you know, you could argue that it would be nice for it to, to have developed more, but I think it's sort of all right in its well, two-minute form. Yeah, I always expected a big, sunshiny Paul McCartney chorus with the word Sanferian in it, and they never come. And that's why it's great. You're, I mean, this is 15 years Yeah, it has a dark yeah. feeling. It's a fine tune. Good production, great yeah. bass work. Good arrangement, good horns on this Yes, one. absolutely. I'm glad we have it. It's a nice little tune. Yeah. It's a fine sort of transition track. The next song in this album, I always forget about this one because it's buried on an album I don't really like all too much. Warm and Beautiful, maybe one of Paul's greatest love songs. Hmm. Oh, you don't like it. (laughs) Well, I I do like it. I just wouldn't say one of his greatest love songs. Oh, that melody? I I know Paul himself regards it highly. Yeah, it's uh, that melody and the chords. I don't know, man. It's pretty good. A love so warm and beautiful Stands when time itself is falling A love so at times are a little cloying. Mm, okay. Yes, a little too old, you know, the wrong kind of old-timey. I think the lyrics are, they're not chopping broccoli, but they're pretty insubstantial, kind of cliched. I agree, it's a beautiful melody, and I like the production a lot. My favorite part of the song is the wacky slide guitar section. That's great. Comes out of nowhere, doesn't come back, and it sounds so weird. It sounds almost like people are humming. You're speaking to exactly what we've said this whole podcast. This is an album about production. Well, I don't want to give the wrong impression. I do like Warm and Beautiful. I think it's beautiful melody, nice arrangement. It's just a little syrupy for my taste. I don't mind the line. Defend it. Defend it. Say what's good. That's why I'm sitting here and thinking about it. Like the line, (laughs) to each his own is wonderful. That's a nice Uh thought. That's a nice line. Yeah, it's a good sentiment. You know? I understand what you're saying, like love, faith. I like the idea. I like the idea of having a quote be the subject of a sentence. That's nice. Right. To each his own is wonderful. Love will never die. It almost doesn't matter to me that he's singing it's about morning glory or moonlight on the yeah. water in that whole middle part because the melody is just so beautiful. I got you. Yeah. It's exactly it's, what I said about it. she's my baby. Don't care. The are yeah. <laughs> and there's, yeah. A, there's, a, there's huge melodic jumps. Like it, it is it, a good melody, isn't it? It's a really, really nice melody. And as we had said for She's My Baby, this is also on Working Classical, a big orchestral arrangement of it, and you really hear how great the music is. That I could imagine, yeah. 
Why, maybe we should play a bit of that? Yes, we should. Yeah, I'm probably not admitting to myself how much I actually like the song. Well, don't let me talk you up. <laughs> is there something a little off about the way he sings it? Yeah, absolutely. It sounds rushed. Vocal? It's rushed. That's why it's at the end of the record, I think. it's. Yeah, he, it sounds as if he needed to do a few more takes. He could have done a few more day. takes, yeah. So it's funny that you say that. The engineer on the records had said, I remember one of my first engineering jobs working with Paul McCartney on Wings at the Speed of Sound. He'd do two vocal takes and ask, which is the better one? I know. I read that too. It makes me sick. Two (laughs) vocal takes. Yeah. I've imagined for much of my life that you always hear Paul McCartney, the consummate, you know, the perfectionist the workaholic perfectionist. And yeah. I always imagined that some of these magical vocals of his, he just went and did it over and over and, you know, they did a lot of editing. But no. We, we found out when we compared the My Love record to the James Paul McCartney broadcast that, ah, yeah, that's pretty much how he sang it live. Yeah. And the idea that he's just going in and doing a handful of takes and picking one, holy Lord. It's yeah, it's all, it's amazing. Michael Jackson too, by the way. That's what they say about Michael Jackson. He he would do three or four, and then they'd do a couple punches, and he'd he'd be done. But in Michael Jackson's case, he was preparing for hours and hours and hours at home, whereas Paul, he just wrote the song. Right. That's the Beatles training, playing eight to twelve yeah. hours a day in Germany. Yeah, and let's face it, Paul's at his best as a vocalist in many ways. He's at least he's at his strongest and most professional at this time with all the touring. I still like his vocals in the 70, 71 the best, but... Easily. I think this is the best era for Paul. There's still more. There's still fun stuff to hear. Still strong material. But it's never quite as good as it is right here. Yeah. So that's everything on the LP. Yeah. And we, rather unusually, have no B-sides or significant unreleased material to talk about. No. But we do have a live document of the blockbuster tour, Wings Over America. I know that you have strong feelings about the singing on this live album. That's right. I think this is Paul at his best live. I don't think you ever hear him sing like this again. You hear Mm. him try to sing like this again, like the live Wings material that has surfaced from 79 or even the early 80s where Paul on Tug of War tries to sing like he does in the mid-70s. But... By the end of the tour, and the last date was in Los Angeles, they were just a well-oiled machine, and his voice was so strong. He could scream all night, and it just sounded better and better and better. And they recorded the entire tour. The, was it Wings Over America? That's the name of the, is it a triple LP? It's a triple LP, yes. A triple LP. With a sweet double-sided poster and a nice gatefold. It's an amazing package. Absolutely. So 
the reason that Paul put this thing out is that the show at the forum, the one in California I mentioned, was bootlegged. It was released as a triple record. It was on a red, white, and blue vinyl. And Paul's like, well, I'm, I won't have that. So he took all the tapes and he listened to everything. It's like 90 plus hours of material. And he turned it into a 28-song set list. And it spent October and November listening and mixing two, two months, like a long time, every single day. And uh, it put some tension on Linda and Paul's marriage, but he got it done. I know that Denny mentions at points they had to go back and redo some of the background vocals and maybe a couple, like overdubbing some guitar parts just to reinforce them. But for what it is, it's a more or less wings live as they were. Yeah, I think he took some criticism for the overdubs, right? That's right. But it's funny, I was listening to Wings Over America this morning and had for, had forgotten about the overdubs and was sitting there listening to it and thinking, wow, these guys really were nailing these harmonies. Live. Yeah, yeah. Oh, in fact, of all tracks, it was Spirits of Ancient Egypt, <laughs> which they really kind of rocked out on live, I got to say. And the background vocals were sounding so good, like almost record quality. And then I, I picked up the book and was reminded, oh, yeah, yeah, th- this was overdubbed. They talk a little bit about the fact that Hey, it's hard to sing and play at the same time. Not every note's going to be dead on. So it was worth trying to trying to fix it a bit. Yeah, and I would rather have Paul and Wings overdubbing that stuff in the 70s than bringing this stuff out and doing what he did to A Love For You and trying to overdub oh, stuff sure. with a different, yeah, like a different tone. Like, I'm glad we have this snapshot of this time. Yeah, I don't care about overdubs. That's fine. There aren't many... And the core of it really is pretty much the live shows. And it's exciting. I mean, it, it really is high-energy stuff. Yeah. like where they, just... where they go straight from rock show into jet? Wow. That's some heavy energy right there. Really great. If I were my age now in the audience in 76 and I saw that, I might, I don't know what I would do. I would be over <laughs> the moon, man. <laughs> yeah. And this was the first tour back in the States for Paul since he was a Beatle. It had been 10 years. 10 years. And he brought out songs like The Long and Winding Road, Yesterday, Lady Madonna. Yeah. I've just seen a face. Apparently, Silly Love Songs was getting as big a reaction as any of those Beatles songs. That's right. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that Long and Winding Road. Okay. Now, Long and Winding Road, you know, McCartney's made a big deal about how the Phil Spector arrangement was such an affront, 
how it was you know such a bastardization of what the song was. And we talked about it on an earlier podcast, how the version on Let It Be Naked is much more like a modest sort of soft rock record. Yes. He seems to go somewhere in between here. He keeps a little of the grandeur of the Phil Spector. He's got some fancy horn parts, and he keeps the tempo down a little bit, closer to the tempo of the Phil Spector. That's right. Is he just giving the audience what they expect? Yeah, he's got one foot in, one the other foot out. It's it's like it's a combination. This is actually my favorite version of the Long and Winding Road. I go to oh, this really? one over the Beatles one or the Naked one, or there's a re-recording for Flowers in the Dirt that is not hmm. so bad. Let me know. Many times I've been alone And many times I cry Anyway, you'll never know The many ways I try But yeah, this is my favorite version of this too What about the, what about the Broad Street version? I don't, I don't know about that You know, that the one. don't keep me waiting You know, that gets harmonized in Wings Over America. That's right, yes. And he, and he plays it up more on Give My Regards to Broad Street. But yeah, what, what were we going to say about the Broad Street version? Well, the Broad Street version is saccharine. All of like the emotion has been drained out of the song. It's just so slick. All those versions. Real high 80s production. Yeah. Saxophone, yeah. Whew. Which really, really works for No More Lonely Nights, but it doesn't work for anything else on that record. Right. Well, for what it's worth, my favorite Long and Winding Road is the Naked one. Okay. But this is probably, this is up there. This is pretty good. Yeah, it's good. The whole album is good. You know, this one went number one in the U.S., this album, and number eight in the U.K. So it was a big commercial success. And this was the time when Maybe I'm Amazed, released as a single, made it in the charts, it made it to number 10 in the Billboard Hot 100. It was released in February of 1977. It only yeah, made it he, up to... He finally got some chart credit for Maybe I'm Amazed. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, if, imagine if it had been released when it was originally recorded. It would have for certainly have been a number one, I think. Number one for a few weeks, yeah. Maybe I'm amazed at the way you love me all the time. Maybe I'm afraid of the way I love you Maybe I'm amazed of the way you pulled me out of time You hung me on a line Maybe I'm amazed of the way I really need you On this collection of music, Denny Lane takes lead vocals on his old Moody Blues hit, Go Now which is fantastic. The harmonies that Linda and Paul have against Denny's lead vocal and piano playing, I just think are a highlight. It gets a real treat that we have that version. I think the Wings version is superior to the Moody Blues version. And mm. 
This live version of Hi, Hi, Hi blows the studio version out of the water. It's faster. It's just crunchier. And it sets the stage for the last track on the album, Soily. Closes the album, actually. That's right. So it has a rather prominent place on this album. Soily has a bit of a history. In preparation for this podcast, I listened to every version of Soily I have. <laughs> What's that, like <laughs> Which is a few. Version? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I prefer the 1972 studio version recorded for Red Rose Speedway. It wasn't even included on the double album list, but it's a great record. Just a great rock record. It's got a nice slapback echo on it. So why don't we do Evolution of Soily here? So I'll play the Antwerp live recording, the studio recording, and we'll finish up the Wings Over America portion of the podcast with the live Soily that closes the album. Sounds good. So that's it, guys. This has been season one of our podcast. We've gone through Paul's albums, McCartney, Ram, Wildlife, Red Rose Speedway, Band on the Run, Venus and Mars, Wings at the Speed of Sound, Wings Over America, and many, many others from ex-Beatles to family members to contemporary artists. We've covered a lot of territory up to this point. And if there's anything I've learned, it's that Paul, though cloying and enigmatic at times, really had a monumental task following the Beatles. He completely reinvented his own sound and was able to climb the charts and regain his throne that he had lost when the Beatles broke up with this band Wings. It's uh, pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean, the narrative here is... Paul recovers from the Beatles, stumbles a bit 
setting wings up finally triumphs with wings. Yeah. And as of 1976, yeah, he's as famous as he ever was and popular as he ever was. And relevant. He's he was relevant in 1976. Well, you know, whatever critics had to say or, you know, too cool for Paul people had to say, he was important in the culture at that point. People talking about how they didn't even know Paul was in a band before Wings. <laughs> That's a bit silly. A bit. This is the pre-internet days. This is it's a different time. Well, this is the classic solo Paul era. When he still sounds like a Beatle, his voice is still his Beatles voice, although more refined and more acrobatic, it's still his Beatles voice. The sound of recorded music was beginning to change pretty substantially by the mid-70s. So a lot of records made by a lot of artists uh, in 70 through 73 still sound a bit like the 60s. By 76, it's the 70s. And something like Wings at the Speed of Sound, it has a pretty 70s quality to it. In many ways, it's defining what the 70s sounds like with tracks like Silly Love Songs. That's right. And this point marks a break, at least in my opinion, of Paul's style. The next album that you see from him, London Town, he starts to reinvent himself again. And that's more of the McCartney that we see in the 80s and the 90s, this solo artist Paul McCartney, not Paul and the band Wings. Yes, in the next season, we're going into this late 70s, early 80s period. We'll be talking about London Town first. And this is, this is going to be fun for us because these are albums people don't know so well. London Town, Back to the Egg, McCartney 2. It's odd territory. Absolutely. It's, it gets very bizarre at this point. So basically, we'll start season two with the beginning of the dissolution of wings. And we'll take you straight through the end of the 70s and well into the 80s as Paul blossoms and becomes a true solo artist. So yeah, it's been a long journey through these few podcasts, but I've had a lot of fun. I've rediscovered some Paul music that I haven't heard in a long time. I've made a lot of connections I hadn't made before. Yes. And a lot of the things that I didn't understand have a new light and there's a new appreciation when you walk through the history of what's going on. The Beatles history is so well known, so well documented that it makes even the lesser Beatles songs, it gives them a bit of a mystery or a mystique because you know the story of the people telling them. With Wings, I hadn't had that up until this point. Yeah. I hope you've gotten some of that out of this. And yeah, that wraps it up for us. So we hope you'll join us again for season two, and we're going to go out with a little preview of late 70s Paul McCartney. What does she get for all the love she gave you? There on the ladder of regret. I do river, give her all she gave.
You've been listening to Take It Away, the complete Paul McCartney archive podcast. We just discussed Wings at the Speed of Sound. That concludes Season 1. We'll see you next time. Our theme music is Martha, My Dear by John Lennon and Paul McCartney, realized by Ryan Brady.